0: In the Trauma-Informed Education podcast, you can get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to our Trauma-Informed PBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. That's tipbs.com. Hello and welcome to Trauma-Informed Education. I'm your host, Dr. Kay Eyre. Today we speak with Megan Bartlett. Megan has spent most of her career working in, designing and advocating for programs that use sports to promote youth development and positively impact communities. She speaks regularly on the power of sport to create social change and help kids heal and is co-author of the book, Redesigning Youth Sports, Change the game. Megan serves on Nike's Global Training Advisory Group and is working with Dr. Bruce Perry and the Child Trauma Academy to create the Neurosequential Model in Sport, a fully trauma informed sport intervention model. Megan is interviewed by my colleague Dr. Gavin Krishnamorthy and myself. I hope you find the interview useful.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Trauma-Informed Education. My name is Dr. Govind Krishnamurti, and I'm here as always with Dr. Kay Hi, Kay.
0: Hi, Govind. How are you today?
1: I'm great. How are you going? I'm well. That's good. We're excited today. We've got Megan here with us. Hi, Megan. How are you?
2: I'm very well, thank you.
1: That's great, we've um, been really looking forward to this, um, speaking with you for quite a while now. Um, Megan, we might just jump right into it. Um, Could you tell us about perhaps maybe where you went to school and um, how that sort of shaped you into the person you are and the work you do at the moment?
2: Absolutely, yeah, sure. Um, I went to a small college in New England called Wesleyan University, uh, where I studied psychology and sociology um, as an undergraduate. Uh, and when I graduated, I was lucky to find a job um, working in community mental health uh, with families of who had children who were transitioning out of hospitalizations for major mental illnesses. Um, and so those families needed a lot of supports, certainly from the men- in mental health care, but also when it came to housing, um, employment, other uh, education, other supports for the family and for the young people. So um, it was a really wonderful way to get to understand not just some of the one-on-one work um, that was being done in the mental health space, but also some of the systemic work um, and the ways in which mental health overlaps with other systems. Um, so what I learned in that job was that I was more interested in the systems work than the one-on-one clinical work. Um, so I went back to, um, graduate school, uh, for a master's in urban policy and planning. Uh, so with a focus on community development and urban policy, um, and I sort of, after that, um, found sort of tripped and fell into a job that allowed me to use sport as the intervention for um, some really interesting social justice questions around equity in obviously access to sport, but also in terms of um, the resources in uh, education systems and other pieces like that.
1: That's really fascinating. You've done a bit of everything. Um. (laughs) Uh, really curious to hear about how you um, use some of that in your work. But could you yeah. tell us about um, sport, Megan? How, how do you think that, uh, what role do you think that plays in children's lives and how do you think it educates yeah. and supports their well being?
2: Well, one of the things that I was most surprised to learn um, when I uh, went to work in uh, this nonprofit, my first sport job. Was that not all kids have the same access to sport? I assumed that every kid had this had the opportunities that I had as a young person to participate not just in sport but in really any sport that appealed to me um, and I came to find out that of course you know um, that wasn't true uh, that uh, young people in different communities have significantly um, less opportunity to participate not just in um, sport in general, but also, you know, they often find themselves if they have sport at all they they have access to one sport and it may not be the sport that speaks to them. Um, if I had only had access to, um, let me think of what I'm really terrible at, uh, swimming, then I'm not sure that sport would have played a, such a significant role in my own life. Um, and so we, I came to find that that um, was definitely something that not every young person had, um, and that those discrepancies certainly ran along a um, uh, socioeconomic and racial uh, lines. So mm. from, the, from that perspective, uh, the opportunity to uh, try and provide more opportunities for young people became really important, um, and that was because I think you know, intuitively I knew how beneficial sport had been for me, Um, and wanting to make sure that young people have those opportunities. Um, But when I think about the benefits of of sport for young people, I always wanna make sure that we're talking about sport when done right, and not just sport for sport's sake, Um, or um, we are so familiar um, with the ways in which the sport environment can go wrong for young people, um, and how many young people are leaving the sport environment because they're not having positive experiences, um, that I just, I, I'm always careful to make sure that when we talk about the benefit of sport, we're talking about the benefit of sport when it's delivered in it in the right way. Um, obviously, physical activity, and if sport for provides a young uh, the opportunity for young people to be physically active, that's wonderful. Um, but and, and sort of an inherent part of being involved in sport. But we also know that with the wrong coach or the wrong way of delivering physical activity, young people can be turned off for good. And so um, making sure that it's the, it's the kind of environment that creates positive experiences with being active, that creates positive experiences with interacting uh, with, uh, yet when young people interact with their teammates, all of those pieces are so critical. Um, and then when it is done right, right, I think the benefits sort of start to, um, uh, pile up exponentially. Um, you know, obviously the physical benefits that come with being active, the opportunity to work with other young people and develop, develop social skills that they'll need to successfully interact with the world, uh, beyond sport, um, I think meaningful relationships with adults, um, again, when sport is done, right. Um, opportunity to develop self and situational awareness, um, the sort of interaction between themselves and their team, their selves in the game themselves in the world, um, is a really powerful thing to practice in sport. Um, I think, you know, and, and this, um, uh, overlaps into the work that we're doing sort of from a trauma perspective, but the ability to regulate the ability to um, develop strategies for regulation, strategies for managing reactions under stress, um, such an incredible and unique opportunity to practice those in sport and to take some really powerful tools of regulation tools from the sport into the other, into other parts of, uh, parts of a young person's life. Um, Learning how to compete, um, learning to uh, the sort of discipline of failing and sticking with it, sticking with something even when it's hard. Um, plan the idea of sort of Plan B thinking, and if not this, then what? Um, and maybe my favorite, just the opportunity to uh, develop confidence amongst your peers. So the ability to you know sort of. Um, Uh, believe in yourself and potentially even stick to your guns when in the face of peer pressure.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm sure there are people listening who are um, physical education um, teachers there. And what's really fascinating, I got out of what you're saying is a lot of the social emotional skills of, uh, of being in relationship um, happens in sport, but, but the way you're talking about it going right and not going so well is that yeah. you do that quite explicitly, don't you? That you pay special attention to how that happens. It's not just about like plonking kids in sport and hoping it will just happen. Could you talk Absolutely. to them a little bit Miguel, about how you kind of work to get that right?
2: Uh, absolutely. And you're exactly right. I think the way in which a coach or a physical education uh, provider or teacher is, approaches the environment is absolutely key to making sure those lessons are learned um, and that it takes really explicit intentionality um, and and teaching to do it. Um, the The idea that young people will be dropped into sport and learned through osmosis, how to interact with other people is sort of, unfortunately, I think um, that that expectation is often taken for granted. Um, And so coaches tend to be focused more on maybe the X and O's of their sport than the ways in which young people are developing or not developing social skills. that enable them to work together as a team, but also that a young person would be able to take beyond the sport environment. Um, So in the the work that I do, which is primarily in training coaches, um, I think the first step there is um, sort of changing the mindset and and thinking a little bit about the approach that coaches take to working with young people. Um, First, making sure that they understand how important the relationships are Um, and how invested they should be in that part of the sport. Um, And fortunately, we can do that in a way that shouldn't um, take away from their desire to see better performance. Good relationships should feed both the social and emotional learning of a young person and their ability to perform better in their sport. And so... Um, thinking about it not just as one or the other, but as both of those as key components of of the you know work they're trying to do, I think is a, a major um reset for a lot of coaches. um they've just come into the sport thinking that they will they will share their knowledge of that specific sport with young people, and that those other pieces aren't not necessarily explicitly. Um, encouraged in the same way.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating um, that, you know, often when you hear about professional athletes doing well, they're often thanking family and friends and teams of people uh, behind them And so it makes sense that a lot of those relationships are so important. Um, On a very practical note, Megan, Mm -hmm. I know a lot of our kids who have trouble at school, um, team sport is just so difficult and and it makes sense why it's difficult. There's lots actually going on there. What are some like very practical things that you suggest to coaches to make that experience a bit inclusive with some of these kids who are having a tough time?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is. There are a lot of stimuli in sport, and so we can understand that for young people who are easily dysregulated that it can become really challenging. Um, those environments can be very challenging. Um, I think from a practical perspective, we look at it in a couple of different ways. Um, one is to, and, and some of these are, I think sport is really uniquely positioned to be able to do and and in many cases, some of this work is already being done by coaches, whether or not they're sort of explicitly or conscious of of why. Um, but one of the things we talk to coaches a lot about is how um, making sure how they make sure that uh, things are as consistent as possible, um, that there's a sense of predictability about how things will go for young people. Um, Thinking about how they manage transitions from wherever young people have been into the sport environment, and then from where from the sport environment to wherever the young people are going to go, um, I tell a lot of coaches that as a college athlete and a college coach, I thought that warming up and cooling down was. Not nearly as important as I've come to understand that it is, both be as I've become an old person whose muscles hurt, but also be as I've become a person who's under who understands um, how valuable those transitions can be for a young person who is managing maybe the chaos of the experience outside of sport and um, the ability to really transition and uh, regulate in a way that allows them to participate more fully in the practice um so both of those pieces i think um really getting coaches to think about those transitions um the ways in which other pieces of what they do are very predictable um cert- making sure that you have a routine or ritual around how you transition from one activity to another, um, thinking about talking to young people in circles instead of sort of there on one knee and you're standing over them, all the things that we know would help a young person feel a little bit more safe, um, that they'd be able to predict what's going on. Um, those I think are, are definitely a sort of fall in one bucket of strategies um, that shouldn't be a huge amount of time or shouldn't be a huge amount of change for a coach. But once they understand why they're so important, I think they are less likely to either take them for granted or, oh, we don't need to do that today. Um, and so I think that's definitely one set of strategies. Um, one thing we talk to coaches a lot about, and I hate to admit that I think coaches, I love coaches just full, you know, full stop, but I hate to think, I actually believe that coaches are really not good at this one. Um, and that is the idea of trying to let young people have some sense of control over their own experience. Um, I think traditionally the sport environment is a little bit my way or the highway and um, coaches coach the way they were coached. Um, and they often had coaches who uh, said, you'll do it this way and you'll like it and you won't ask questions. <laughs> um, so we, um, I think the idea of how do you really provide young people some choice, some control over their experience, um, um, some, uh, some, almost the sharing of some power around the experience um, can really help engage them in a way that doesn't feel as um, you know, negatively stimulating as some of the other sport
1: environments can be. Yeah. um, Oh, sorry. Go on, Kate.
0: I was just thinking, Megan, as you were talking literally just then, um, does that feed into, so bear with me, what I used to find very difficult, not being a sport person or a coach or having that um, background, but also when I used to, Um, observe the 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 sport teacher at school there was a really huge difficulty with helping these kiddies know how to lose with pride Mm. and I'm wondering if what you've just said if they did uh, and and uh, yeah correct me if I'm wrong but if they had a little bit more control within those routines would that not seem as just another grand failure because I've seen kids be so enthusiastic and as soon as they're on a losing streak or they don't get the ball as often as they perceive the other child's getting the ball, everything just goes downhill. They physically run out of the space, you know, (laughs) and it's like, oh, how do I teach them how to lose with pride (laughs) sort of thing? So how do you do that?
1: Um,
2: I, I think you're absolutely right that these things are uh linked um the idea of how giving young people some control, giving young people some sense of proportionality in what they're doing um i think is a is definitely a a part of that um I find that generally young people who are so um set off by losing or um, sort of disproportionately respond to what seems like something not that that is sort of with an adult perspective um, a little should be easier to manage, Um, tends to be this sort of inability to regulate generally, um, that those are the kids who are the first to um, explode out of a classroom just as they are most likely to explode out of a sporting environment. Um, obviously, knowing that the sporting environment has already worked to wind them up a little bit, um, and therefore the ability to regulate is even, is even more important and potentially even a little bit more difficult to do in those situations. Um, but I do think that sport does provide some platforms in which young people can practice that um there are a ton of um, strategies that athletes go through in order that they actually use typically as warm-up strategies um, that are you know patterned repetitive rhythmic activities that if they if a coach can help them use those things as regulation strategies as opposed to just the way we work up but also the way we work down, then I think that those strategies, what's what's really nice about those strategies is that they can also just feel like they're contributing to your performance um so if you i I worked with a young person who had a terrible time um managing exactly what was the the picture of what you described had a terrible time managing losing had a terrible time managing what he perceived as disrespect on the court because he got sort of bumped. This was a basket in, in the case of basketball, but he got, you know, uh, bumped under the boards just in the regular run of play and whatever those were, he was, whatever those um, circumstances were, he was perceiving them in a way that clearly made him feel unsafe and some, you know, and, and caused a reaction. And so we worked on, a strategy where he would um, come over to the sideline or come out of the game. Um, And typically we see a lot of coaches take a kid out of the game and then just sort of push them over onto the bench and not pay attention to them. Um, But in, for, for what we did, we had this young person put headphones on and dribble to the beat of a song for the three minutes that he was playing his favorite song on his headphones. And the, amount, the the way in which he was able to come back in a more regulated state was really shocking. Um, and then it went from him needing to do it for the three minutes to him to needing to do it for about half the song, for him needing to do it about 30 seconds, for him needing to just come over and not put the headphones on, but give himself a couple of dribbles. And then he was able to come back. Um, And even we even got to the point where when there was a stop in the run of the game, if he could just grab the ball, give himself a few of those dribbles, then he could get back without actually even having to leave the game. And so I think that's a very specific example. But I think that there are ways within the sport to give young people those opportunities and when they're within the sport they don't feel like punishment it doesn't feel like you've done this thing that's so terrible and now you have to you know suffer the consequences it can actually feel like a positive way that you're working on your handle and working on your management of stress
1: yeah, that's a great story. Thank you so much for that. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about the regulation piece and the pattern, rhythmic, repetitive movements. Um, and just to make the links, I think it helps with performance sport and sport, but it must help with how kids do in class as well. And, Absolutely. Uh, and I wondered what your thoughts were about how teachers can incorporate <coughs> and some of that activity into their class, Megan. Did you have some thoughts about that so that it's not just... Um, you know, relegated to the PE teacher (laughs) that um, they could think about movement more generally.
2: Absolutely. Um, And I think, you know, we know how when a young person is um, dysregulated and sort of wound up, for lack of a better word, that often the strategy is to encourage them to sit silently, um, which is the thing they are least capable of doing in that moment. Um, And so I think even just allowing for space for a young person to walk um, or space for a young person to move in those, in some way in those situations is really valuable. Um, I, I would never claim to um, be, uh, some teachers will disagree with me on this, um, but I think if you can have a jump rope in your classroom and allow a young person to jump rope um, and do that in a way that, um, doesn't distract from the rest of what's going on. Um, I think that's, that can be really powerful. I think it can be really powerful for young people to learn how to focus when another kid is jumping rope. So, um, when teachers push back on me on that, I say, well, how valuable will it be for you, for the rest of your kids to be able to focus on you while this kid's jumping rope? But, um, so I think those, that is, the, those are kinds of um, strategies for that. I think um, I believe like very strongly that the um, action of playing catch with someone is magical. Um, and in a classroom, you can use a beach ball, right? It doesn't have to be something that would disrupt, um, you know, or potentially harm someone who's not looking at it if they were to be um, the victim of a unsolicited ball to the head. But um, the, so this, you know, sort of back and forth where you have control over the speed, where you have control over the distance, where you control over the velocity, where you control, control over the whole experience with another person and sort of attuning with that person um, is, can be so powerful. Um, And so if a young person is um, dysregulated and they can play catch with someone that they feel safe with, I think that's an incredible way to sort of change the trajectory of, of the experience instead of sending them out to wherever they're supposed to go.
1: Yeah. That's really fascinating. I think often we think about the, repetitive rhythmic activities is something a child needs to go off and do so that they can calm down. But really you're talking about it in terms of a core regulation experience, you know, something that you both share, um, which reminds me of, you know, like patting a baby to sleep yeah, or something absolutely. like that. Yeah. Uh, or playing basketball, even, you know, just shooting hoops together and mm-hmm. uh, how that's such a shared experience.
2: And I do think that it is one of the things for, or teachers to consider in their classroom is not just using them when young people are dysregulated, but can you use them at the beginning of class to sort of set yourself up for wherever they've been, they're transitioning into your class in a way that you're helping them get to a baseline regulation um, that will hopefully sort of help hold or contain them throughout some of the challenges that they might face throughout the there, throughout the day, um, and, and even taking breaks to do that in a way that isn't, that makes the activities not just about what you do when you're dysregulated, but about these are habits for, you know, just sort of being healthy. And then they are just part of what is done in the classroom and not just these um, sort of consequences for dysregulated behavior.
1: Yeah, um, just to zoom out for a second, um, and speaking to people who might still be a bit unconvinced about <laughs> frivolity, maybe I'm used it, to that. it is That's fine. <laughs> so. Way, Megan. Uh, I was just curious to hear, Megan. Uh, how, what do we understand about this sort of movement and what it does in the brain? And um how it actually neurologically kind of helps these kids um function in in sport but also sort of more gender in life
2: yeah so um i've been lucky to work with um dr bruce perry of the child trauma academy here in the u.s um and he would do an A a thousand times better job explaining this than I will Um, but he's also very um, prone to saying that whenever it comes to the brain the answer is that it's a little more complicated than that Um, but I'll try and give the basics knowing that with the sort of um, understanding that it's a little more complicated than that Um, but generally um, you know the the way the uh, brain is structured the part of the brain in charge of uh, regulating our stress response or our response to stimuli in the in the world um, can become sort of hypersensitive for young people, particularly young pe- for any people, but particularly for young people who've been exposed to overwhelming stress in critical periods during brain development. And so once that part of the brain becomes sort of Hypersensitive, um, the they are. We see those disproportionate responses, like Kay was talking about. This idea that a small stress is actually experienced as a large stress. So the being um, fouled uh, in front of the net feels like you're being chased by a bear, right? And we know that being fouled in front of the net is not the same experience as being chased by a bear, but our bodies react that way. And often young people don't first understand why their body reacts that way or second, understand how to calm that reaction. And so these patterned rhythmic repetitive experiences can sort of help calm that react, can help calm that stress response. Um, often uh, Dr. Perry talks about it at, you know, that. Going back to even before a young person is born, the most, the soothing, the sort of first pattern that's imprinted on a young person's brain is that of their maternal heartbeat. And so when you can find those kinds of rhythms in the world, they can bring back to a baseline that sense of um, safety and control.
1: Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I was thinking about the example of the bear. That sounds very, very much like something Bruce would say.
2: Uh, Oh, yeah, for sure. He probably has been chased by a bear because he's always (laughs) out there. Looking,
1: looking for trouble, really, is what we call <laughs> um, I was just reflecting, I watched my niece play tennis the other day, and mm-hmm. I was reflecting on my own experience of having learned it. And, and it struck me how much fun it is that the kids have these days, you know, that they make it kind of really fun. And I was thinking about it a lot of our kids that, uh, you know, especially sport in school gets just tied up with everything else. And it it just feels like such a, not a very kind of joyful experience. Um, And on the flip side, I think the kids have trouble kind of regulating being excited and being overly, Mm. uh, you know, um, silly and things like that. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that and just being able to have fun and and, um, being able to kind of rein yourself in as well in those moments.
2: Uh, well, first, I'm glad to hear that it sounded like it was a joyful experience. Um, I think one of the, I think one of the really, when you said tennis, um, I tend to think about some of the unique aspects of different sport that either lend themselves or don't lend themselves to the ability to help young people regulate or their ability for young people who've been exposed to trauma to. Uh, be successful in those kinds of uh, environments. And and usually it's not that the sport is better or worse for those young people, but that there are s- sort of these critical moments within a sport that you can really capitalize on if you know what you're looking for. Um, and I think one of the uh, things about tennis that's so unique is that coaches are not allowed to coach during the match. And so this idea of control for sure for a young person um, can be really powerful or might be intimidating for a young person without that kind of support. And so I think in a lot of cases, it comes down to really understanding your sport and understanding why certain scenarios in your sport may or may not be sort of um, particularly stressful for a young person. Um, That wasn't your question, but that was sort of what it made me think of when you were talking about tennis. Um, But I do think it's linked to this idea of um, knowing when and where within your sport a young person is more or less likely to be stimulated in a way um, that changes their their behavior. Um, And so, you know, hopefully, if the problem is that, kids are having too much fun, I'm willing to work, I'm willing to, I'm willing to live with those outcomes. Um, But if, but I I do think then they are as primed to sort of learn um, some self-regulation strategies as they're going to be, right? The sort of, happy, overstimulated. I'll take that every day of the week over scared, overstimulated, angry, overstimulated, you know, sort of, um, aggressive overstimulated, uh, in terms of, uh, being able to then find those ways to regulate. Um, I do think some of how we do that is making sure that practices are still structured, even if they're fun. Um, and then you, if young people know that after they play the most fun game they've ever played in their lives, they're still gonna do a back and forth cool down um, where they have that opportunity to regulate, then um, that consistency and that um, structure can help contain some of that, um, some of the stimulation.
1: Great, Now that was really good. Um, uh, We also know uh, one of the ways often Uh, schools used to engage parents is to have sports carnivals and sports days and things like that um uh, how do you see sport being and kids children's sport particularly playing a role in kind of bringing communities together or bringing even kind of uh, school communities together did you have any thoughts about that yeah
2: yeah absolutely i um i think that you know Again, when done right, those kinds of experiences can be really powerful for a community. Um, the sense of identity, the sense of belonging that can come from that, I think, can be really powerful. Um, can be really powerful for young people um, and for their parents. Um, one of the things that I find in the communities that I'm that I tend to work in are that um, these are young people going. To school in a community where there are not a lot of resources and when a school system is um, tapped and uh, out of capacity the reasons that parents get engaged tend to be only when something goes terribly wrong. Um, That mostly those schools tend to be putting out fires instead of sort of proactively dealing with the health and wellness of a young person. And so in those situations, one of the things we like to help coaches think about is how do you, how can you be this positive link to the school experience, both for the young person, but also for the parents? Um, Can you call up a parent unsolicited and say, your kid had a great day today? Um, I don't think a lot of young people, a lot of um, parents get that call. Um, and they can sometimes get that call, um, a coach who's working with, um, young people every day, um, you know, 25 to 30 young people every day can make that call where if they don't quite have as many, um, demands on their time for helping young people pass tests and things like that. So I think that's one of the sort of proactive ways we've encouraged coaches to make a more positive experience for parents um, and not just about the call that a young that a parent gets when a young person is struggling.
1: Yeah that's really interesting I think and it's such a uh, primal thing I think sports got that real uh, knack of bringing people together large groups of people together so it's a very powerful tool isn't it um, listening to you makes me think I want to get back into playing some of the sports I haven't been playing for a while <laughs> um, what was what would be your message to kind of teachers listening I mean it's it's sometimes it can be a really full-on difficult kind of job how do you yeah, absolutely. It, um being part of people's self-care and their mental health even yeah
2: um, I think you know and and I think there's more and more research to support this. the idea that you know it it has a tremendous impact on your mental health on and on your ability to um, to uh, be resilient in the face of adversity um and so you know i', I it also makes me think about um i was. Uh, Dr. Perry and I have been uh, doing some webinars on the connection between sport and helping young people heal. And one of the things that he said is, you know, the most, the best way to help a young person regulate is to be regulated. And so I think oftentimes, uh, we run into adults who um become dysregulated by their kids being dysregulated. And so the ways in which um, sport and physical activity and uh, connecting to the outdoors in some cases can actually help with the calming of our own stress response um, actually makes us better regulated to deal with the dysregulated young person. Um, And so I think, you know, that, that in and of itself can, Um, set us up for easier days um, which I think often gets doesn't always get the attention it it could when you're thinking about how behavior management strategies or things like that.
1: Yeah that's a really uh, interesting point and I think it um, you know we often talk to um, teachers who have you know netball teams or (laughs) little kind of stuff yeah. And it goes such a long way in staff cohesion and shared interests. and uh, And so you're not just talking about difficult kids in the staff room. You've actually got something else to talk about.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, I've got uh, one other sort of really practical question, then I might throw to sure. Kay if she had something. Uh, did you have any thoughts about um, sports that might better suit Um, kids who are having a lot of trouble at school, Megan, in terms of just from a regulation point of view, but also from like a social skills Mm -hmm. and kind of point of view. Are there some things that suit some, you know, some of these kids better? Or do do you feel like it's really about getting to know every student and understanding their preferences?
2: Yeah. Um, I think it's probably more like the latter. Um, I do think that, you know, I get we get asked this question a fair amount. Um, this is, you know, the profile of my young person, what sport should they play? Um, and I think there, there is no answer to that question. I think there are, it is about thinking through the, uh, what we call it, we call it, and this may not be a, a valuable term, but it's sort of how it or, we organize it for ourselves is we call it the therapeutic core of each sport. And so sort of thinking through the elements of different sports and how they may or may not, um, contribute to, uh, uh a positive experience for young people, uh, for a young person. So is a running club more, um, uh, does that f- sort of suit a young person better than a full contact sport potentially based on the backgrounds of that young person, right? If we know that physical touch is a, is a um, trigger for a young person then obviously we'd want to start with something like running um or swimming or something like that um but if uh in in the us i i i've done a lot of work in new orleans louisiana where they had a major uh storm a uh, hurricane that involved a huge amount of flooding and so recommending a young person who's been through that experience to be a swimmer may not be the, you know, sort of most uh, therapeutic experience for them. And so thinking through, I think, what, how it fits their background, but also, again, making sure that coaches under, who are working with these young people understand that there are these sort of high leverage moments within every sport that can either help really build resilience in a young person or actually sort of go the wrong way uh, for a young person. I think that's, to me, that's the the more sustainable solution to that question is that if every sport, if every coach sort of understood that every young person is going to have a different reaction to some of those high-stress moments, then they can become these really powerful teaching experiences. I think um, I, I was a soccer player, but I've now given two basketball examples, which is not like me. Um, but uh, I think in basketball about the role of a foul shot, um, which is all eyes on you, you know, it, it can be really high pressure situation, um, but it's also a time in which a lot of young people um, without, and this is without, you know, sort of putting on your trauma lens, but even within the culture of basketball, a lot of young people are taught these sort of rituals and routines that help them refocus and not focus on the stress of the situation. So they do these very ritualized things before they take a foul shot. And the other thing about foul shots is that they it's the only time no one's playing defense on you. So if you, if you sort of take the elements of a game and deconstruct them in a way that helps you put in perspective those moments for a young person, then I think that's the best way for adults to help manage that situation for a young person. Um, and then, you know, basketball is fewer people to a coach than maybe soccer or, or but soccer is continuous play and there aren't as many stops mm. and the young person gets to run more. And so um, I believe soccer to be, you know, holy. So Every young, I could say, just say the answer is soccer, but I do think it comes down to the to the way in which the sport is managed and the background
1: of a young person. Yeah, that is really fascinating. That's very interesting stuff. Kay, did you have um, any questions or comments for Megan?
0: Yeah, Megan, I don't know that this needs might necessarily needs an answer, but as you were talking about. Um, you know the the importance of sport I was thinking from my own experiences of being a teacher of highly disrupted children in the majority in my class um, mm-hmm. and the conflict that I used to have with the school rule that if they misbehaved in class they didn't get to go and represent the school at football or whatever sporting mm-hmm. team they were in and I used to really struggle with needing to follow that rule because in my experience my very disruptive child in the classroom had never stepped a foot wrong on the sporting field because they were so good at it they were invested in it they really wanted to do well and yet I was taking that only opportunity away for them to you know to to strive and and have some control and some 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 sense of success and yet because of the system I didn't have a choice and therefore the behavior in the classroom would escalate because they'd been wronged and it wasn't fair and how dare you and all of this and in my head I'm thinking I know I know I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I don't want to do this Um, but that's that's very common and very real that if you can't do this in an academic sense you don't get to do this in a sporting sense Mm -hmm. Um, And I understand why that needs to be in place um, in some instances, but I, yeah, I just, I never really knew how to get around it other than we as a class would go out and just happen to have extra sporting breaks during that week so that I think it was to make me feel better (laughs) as well because I felt so guilty um, imposing a rule to me that just didn't make any sense. Um, yeah. If the student had been disruptive, disrespectful, and harmful in the sporting space, I got it. But when there was yeah. no indication that the child right. had behaved poorly in the sporting environment, I used to find that really difficult to to hack.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think that's exactly right, and I think we know because of this brain science why a young person can be more successful in that environment often than they can be in some of the the more traditional education environments. And, and I just, I couldn't agree with you more that taking away the opportunities for a young person to feel successful um, and for, to sort of build on the virtuous cycle of experience is a really missed opportunity when we take those away Um, i think it comes down to a a, um i can't speak um to your educational context but in the u.s it comes down to a a systematic sort of devaluing of physical activity as a tool for learning not that uh, uh, and this idea that it's this extra frivolous thing Um, as opposed to really understanding the brain science that tells us it's priming the brain for learning in a way that other things just don't. And, and so I think, you know, despite these incredibly brilliant neuroscientists from these incredibly um, powerful institutions going and telling education systems that they're doing it wrong, there's some reason why that still doesn't come, come through. Um, And I think that's, A shame from the learning perspective, but it's definitely a challenge from the perspective of young people who've been exposed to overwhelming stress. Because without those, um, without the that physical activity to help regulate, they really do struggle.
1: Thank you. That's really interesting. I had one other question, again. Sure. I was going to ask about um, this idea of um, uh, girls and women having access to sport. Um, mm-hmm. So here in Australia, we've got, you know, we're tackling a big obesity problem. And one of the key pieces of the research is how sport, especially sport and exercise, often drops off um, mm-hmm. for uh, women and girls in those kind of early adult, early young adult, late kind of teen kind of um, years what were your thoughts on that because i mean that's such an important um avenue to regulate too isn't it for um absolutely girls.
2: um i think there are you know there are a lot of reasons why we lose young people at those ages um some of the research in the u.s has shown that overwhelmingly it has to do with a lack of positive experience in those supporting ex- in those environments and either that they didn't feel connected to their coach, they didn't feel connected to their team, or it just wasn't fun anymore, right? Sort of at the middle school level, it starts to become um, this idea of winning becomes a much bigger part of what the experience is. And, and um, the, the need to measure yourself against other people becomes a big part of the sport experience. Then, you know, the, you're on varsity, you're on travel team, you're on whatever, you know, sort of, A team versus B team, and that, I think, can be really discouraging to young people. It can be very discouraging to girls, um, particularly when we know that most girls don't have a woman coach to help them manage it, to help set an example for them, to help um, give their personal experience of how they overcame that, um, to model that it's normal to keep going in sport. Um, we really struggle in this country with a lack of female coaches at every level. Um, and, uh, so I think, you know, there are a lot of those things sort of intertwine and overlap to create this significant drop-off, um, for particularly girls in sort of the early adolescence, middle school years.
1: Yeah that's really interesting. Thank you Megan. What what are you currently curious about in your work at the moment? What are you working on?
2: Um I'm really curious about the um sort of ways in which the sport world has a lot of strategies for Um, physical injury intervention, um, both prevention and intervention. So this idea that you do all these things to make sure you don't blow out your knee, or when you do blow out your knee, you rehab your knee in a certain way. Um, And I think there are a lot of ways in which we can learn from those strategies to create sort of psychological injury interventions. Um, And so the sort of parallel between those two things is something that Um, I've been thinking a lot about um, and sort of bleeds into this understanding of what, what can we learn sort of from performance sports psychology as a tool for healing um, that actually where the um, self-talk and where the um, ability to really regulate for the purpose of being able to perform um, are done regularly at, in, from a sort of elite level, are there things that we can learn to bring that into a, a healing environment and or educate those elite practitioners around how when they, fa- when when young people, when, and really they are young people, often when they get to these elite levels, when they come with the need for more management around Um, their own experiences, can those same strategies be applied to to an elite athlete to help them manage their trauma history as it does to help them manage whether or not they can hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. It's almost this idea of psychological fitness and conditioning, isn't it, Um, that you're kind of keeping up on a regular basis, proactively um, almost um thank you so much megan um this i was thinking you know they say doctors are frustrated artists but i know a lot of psychologists male psychologists who are i think frustrated coaches i think (laughs) 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 so i think uh we could talk to you about this but we really appreciate your time um was there anything you wanted to share with our listeners about how they can get in touch with you or um kind of get some of the material you're kind of talking about at the moment
2: yeah, sure. Um, we are doing this series of webinars with Dr. Perry and the Child Trauma Academy, which I think has been really interesting and really fun. Um, we're just finishing our last of a five-part series on the basics of brain development um, and sort of drawing quick links to the sport world. Um, the next series of five webinars will be some really tangible strategies in the sport world with uh, with Dr. Perry pulling back all the you know key concepts in brain development. So, those are available on the Child Trauma Academy through the Child Trauma Academy, and so finding those, um, if people are interested, it, it, I could listen to Dr. Perry talk indefinitely, but um, they are really incredible um, if you're a nerd like me. Um, and then the uh, I, you know, people can reach me through uh, my organization, which is called We Coach, um, and our website is weallcoach.com.
1: Excellent. And we'll put up those links on our show notes as well. Megan, thank you so much. This has been really fascinating um, to learn from you and it's really fascinating to see how you are pulling learnings from different fields uh, into helping children. So thank you for your work and thank 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 you so much for your time.
0: Thank you. Yeah, thank you both. That was our interview with Megan Bartlett. To get access to the links and resources mentioned in the interview, please visit www.tipbs.com. If you are enjoying listening to our show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Your ratings make all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.